Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Robbie Arnott. Robbie's debut novel was Flames, and it helped him become one of the 2019 Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Novelists. He won the Margaret Scott Prize in the 2019 Tasmanian Premier's Literary Awards, and and seemingly he was shortlisted and longlisted on just about every other prize list. Robbie is an incredible author. Uh, You have heard him before on the podcast, and today he joins me to discuss his new novel, The Rain Heron. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Now, I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connections to their lands. It always was, always will be Aboriginal land. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. Now, I'd love it if you could help me to help others discover great new Australian books and stories. And you can do that by giving us a rating or leaving a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. Your ratings, your comments, they all sort of help boost us in the algorithms that make podcasts appear, and it'll put Final Draft in front of more eyes in the podcast world. Let people know that we're out there. So today on the show... In the forest near a small town, Wren has driven herself to a life of solitude after her world was torn apart by violence of a military queue that has overtaken the country. Wren lives by her wits, hunting and bartering with a local man for the bare necessities of life. But when the military arrive, led by the brutally resourceful Harker, Wren believes she can outlast them. But the military have set their sights on an impossibility. The mythical rain heron is the stuff of legend. And Harker has been tasked with finding it and bringing it back. And she believes Wren knows where it is. Join me as we discover Robbie Arnott's The Rain Heron. Robbie, look, welcome back. Welcome. Thank you for, um, thank you for joining me again. This is so exciting to be chatting. Thank you for having me, Andrew. It's really, really nice to be back a couple of years later. It's exciting to have a new book. Congratulations. We were just talking about how Flames has been picked up to be turned into a series, which is very exciting. Um, but I want to I foreshadow a little bit of our discussion by trying to get, get to grips with the rain heron. Because in a forest near a town lives a woman. Wren has, has driven herself to a life of solitude after her world was torn apart by the violence of a military coup that has overtaken the country. Now, Wren's surviving through her skill, wits, and a guarded alliance with a man in the nearby village. But when the military arrive in the forest that is Wren's sanctuary, she believes she can hide and perhaps outlast them, though she's soon drawn into their quest for an impossible creature. Um, I think the best way to start this conversation is to talk a little bit about mythology. Uh, The Rain Heron opens with the mythology of the Rain Heron. It's a it's a bird-like creature, seemingly made of water that, that, as I can tell, it bestows vigor on the land. And in your opening, the rain heron is driven from the land by human jealousy and the actions of an individual, and it, it causes the destruction of the entire town. Mythology infuses the entire novel, and I wondered what role mythologies and the stories that are beyond the ordinary kind of play in your life. Yeah, I'm deeply interested in myths and those older forms of storytelling. And I knew I wanted to write about environment and nature as well. And I guess in my life, I'm really lucky. I live in Tasmania, so I get to go to spend out and spend a lot of time 
natural world. They're very beautiful places. It's all very accessible to me. And I like snorkeling and bushwalking and things like that. And so it's hard, I find, to look around the world we live in in the natural landscapes and not to feel a sense of it all being much bigger than we are. Um, and I don't mean that in some very deep spiritual sense. I just mean in almost a sense of confusion because I, I do feel kind of awe-inspired in the older sense of the word. So when it comes to mythology, it, it makes sense to me that people have always made myths up about the world they live in. And so when it came to writing a rain heron, I, I wanted to create these myths where people were completely almost nowhere near as important as the forces shaping the world around them. And I wanted there to be these huge elemental forces occurring that that weren't subjugated by humans or weren't even all that concerned with humans. And then I wanted to put real people in those in those environments and see what happened and tease out these characters and conflicts against a mythical backdrop. Mythology, I guess, is where, you know, when we're kids, we learn about different mythologies and some people really take them to heart. Um, you know, anyone who has, has religion and practices religion um, has, 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 you know, devoted their life to, I guess, a, a type of mythology. And we learn that mythologies have lessons. When you are thinking about mythology and when you're writing something like The Rain Heron, though, are you, are you looking for the story as, as entertainment or are you, are you looking to embed some sort of that, that lesson that seems to come with mythology in it? Um. I do think about it, I guess, as entertainment in the turn of, in the sense that I really hope people keep turning the page because they want to know what's going to happen. And that's really important to me because, you know, I like books that, that draw me along with us, with really interesting characters and I want to know what's going to happen to them. Um, I'm not so much concerned with there being lessons or messages. I, I'd much rather create a world or a book where a lot of things can be interpreted in lots of rich and varied ways and people can get all sorts of things out of it. I really wouldn't want to write a book where there's one key didactic message that I want everyone to take in. I'd rather it be more of a two-way relationship between the book and the reader. I think that's a more enriching experience. So you stage the world of the Rain Heron. Uh, it's on the. Uh, it's a world on the edge, and there's been a, a military coup that we we constantly hear referred to. The details are hazy, but we can see that there's environmental de- degradation. And a consequent sort of human response that sees ever more control being asserted by a central authority. And I guess we first see this in Wren. She's driven herself into the woods. The landscapes of the Rain Heron, are, they're vivid. Um, and they're, they're very hard to place in a, in a single space. But it seems they're also constantly morphing around the humans. Now, Ren learns to live within her environment, but others find themselves victim to sudden and capricious turns in the weather. Is this an environment maybe taking back control a little bit? In a sense, definitely. Yeah, it's very much. The characters in the book are very much can be divided into two camps. I realised after I read this, um, it wasn't all that deliberate. Um, but there's people who uh, exist within an environment in a way that where there's a bit of give and take and they're not seeking to dominate it, where they're seeking to live within it. And there's characters who are seeking to completely dominate the environment or to take as much as they can from it without thinking of it as a, as a mutual um, coexisting, coexistence. So the environment in that sense does essentially take things back or not necessarily fight back, but there are consequences. There are real consequences to what people do to the natural 
natural world around them. I think that's just as true in my strange made-up novels as it is in our world. It strikes me when I when I read your novels and even like so thinking back to Flames, but vivid in my mind right now is the Rain Heron that you're. You're someone who, perhaps in your life, but definitely in your writing, you 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 sit very happily with ambiguity, and that's something that I I love in the Rain Heron. There are things that I think I know about the story, and this is this is not a great question because I, I I'm not really going anywhere. But there are things that I think I know about the Rain Heron, but you are always just one step away from confirming, and I I love that. That is actually something that I love in writing. There you go. Take that as a comment. <laughs> there was no question there. Uh-huh. Oh, thank you. No, I think ambiguity is really important, um, at least to my writing style, because uh, I think it, it allows for a richer story. And unless I'm absolutely sure that this is the exact thing I want to make crystal clear, I'll leave it a little slightly open for interpretation, because I feel if I'm not 100% sure about it, then I shouldn't insist that it is that way. Um, and I think it, it's a nice way of reading a story, too. Um, it's nice to feel like you're involved in something and, and becoming figuring things out about something rather than just being told something. So Ren is our our character we meet. She's living in the woods. Ren seems to present an interesting conundrum because while it seems that she has had to escape an unlivable world, it's also hard for us to escape the conclusion that she's kind of abdicated any responsibility for being a part of that world. She's fled for her own reasons, but we do meet other characters who have had to remain. Can we ever just escape our world when it gets too much for us? I mean, I feel like this is, and this is, this is not a, a small question, I think, in the times that we are living in. We, we can for a short amount of time, I think. I think there is a degree of escape, but as occurs in the rain here and to rent, and as occurs in our world with the, the despoilation of nature, it, uh, there's no running forever. And the consequences of your actions, of our actions, will always catch up with us. And I guess that's what that occurs to some of the characters in the brain here. And eventually, uh, it all catches up. So Ren is living in the woods. She has this uneasy alliance with Barlow. And into this world steps Harker. And we come to learn that she is an efficiently brutal soldier. But she's also captivating to all who meet her, and it seems like there is this kind of an overlap between her grace and single-mindedness. Um, it was such an interesting character to introduce into this dynamic, and particularly the ways... Could you could you talk a little bit about the ways that Harker goes about achieving her ends, um, particularly the way she, I guess, gets under Ren's skin? Yeah, so Harker is a is a like you said a very brutally efficient character who is incredibly sure of herself and is seeking to fulfil her objective uh, in the quickest way possible. And while it's not very clear in the book early on, she actually wants to do it with the middle amount of cruelty and pain as well. Um, and she's perfectly happy to be cruel and to be brutal. She thinks it's warranted, but she'd really rather not. Um, but she cares more about her objectives and her goals than she does about um, taking care of people or being a good person. And that's something that occurs to her and occurs to Ren is what are the costs of achieving your goals? Um, and there are great costs for both of them. And I wanted to create a character with Harker who is at once you know, completely kind of hateable. Um, she's 
but at the same time, somewhat understandable. And she realised that almost maybe she's the lesser of some of the greater evils around. The narrative of the Rain Heron shifts at this point, and we're introduced to Zoe. We move to a whole other part of the country. And in Zoe's story, the role of the northerner was particularly interesting to me. Um, and look, I, I mean, I guess in, in the way that we are, we are thinking about that balance of humans living with nature, because you introduce another mythology, the savage but sort of magical um, ink squids that, that have to be tamed with human blood. And into this world, the northerner arrives. He's this sort of figure of industrial progress, and he's rebuffed by the town who prefer their their old ways. And in this town, we see the... This was what was most interesting to me. We see the town suffer despite rebuffing the northerner. And I, I could see a different way this story plays out where they, they take on the northerner's industrial progress, and that's why they suffer. But... The town, the town suffers despite this. He was just a part of a larger system, and they become victims of that larger system. Was this a sort of a, a bleak look at the the stranglehold that commerce and the free market has on our lives? Um, it, it was in a sense, although um, I didn't really know what I was definitely trying to say, other than to paint a picture of things that occur. And in a sense, of this poor town, um, they reject this uh, kind of friendly industrialization approach from the northerner but no matter how far removed they are from the rest of the world they aren't removed from the consequences of climate change and from uh, yeah the degradation of the environment so it's it shows how that these things are taken out of some people's hands um it, it, it stuff kind of occurred to me when i was on a holiday in europe and i was my fiance and i were kind of hiking around the high tatras these mountains in slovakia and I was reading the information panels about the forests there, and they're saying, well, all these forests are just regrowing from years and years of acid rain. Um, they're all washed over from these huge uh, factories, all the rest around the these huge factories, hundreds and hundreds of kilometres away in other countries. Yet the acid rain fell on the mountains of Slovakia and completely destroyed the forests for a few decades. And I just couldn't get that out of my mind that these local people actually had nothing to do with that and yet they suffered the consequences of, of some decisions made so far away. It um the ink. So the this in this in this coastal village they they harvest ink from these incredible squids and the ink is is magical in its properties and this was something that that really got to me and I I realized I'd been thinking about it in my head when you started talking there that in this time, in this time of, of COVID nineteen, where we've all suffered so much, art has become so important, but also it seems to have been so casually discarded by, um, you know, the people in power. And we really find that it's been very hard to support. And it was getting my head around the fact that something like this ink squid, which has such huge artistic potential, actually kind of faded from people's imaginings. Um, that was that was really interesting to me. I could, I mean, I could see if this, if if the rain heron was a news story today, we would be getting online and we would be having Instagram sort of live things to support artists that were using the ink squid. Um, it it was it really struck me how that that sort of artistic side of it um, played out in your world. Yeah, I mean, art is one of the first things to be demonised when people are trying to. Uh segment people, I think, and um, 
yeah, there was a real artistic sense to this ink in this in this book, and and it's completely forgotten in the context of the book because of the trauma that's going on. And yeah, while I when I wrote it, I didn't know that uh, all the art funding was going to be cut and that COVID nineteen was going to hit. And artists were going to be struggling more than ever, but at the same time, it, it's not really that surprising if you give a look, look at the track record of how authority figures have treated art and artists. Um, they're very, very easy to bully and very, yeah, not appreciated anywhere near as much as the actual public appreciates them. Mm. Now, the Rain Heron, it has this really, it has this relatively small ensemble of characters, but you do take us through and across stages of their lives and the, the growth and the development is neither, well, it's, it's, it's not linear. Um, do you have a sense of how your characters grow for you and what are you looking for when you are sort of developing characters in this way? Yeah, I guess I just try to put them in uh, circumstances that will force them to react in ways that they can't quite predict themselves. So it's, I guess we're trying to create levels of tension and, and difficult circumstances. And they're not so much to actively try and grow them as characters, but to see how they would react and then write that out and see how I think it would go. And then once that has occurred, how I think they would have changed. Um, and I don't come to the page knowing for sure what's going to happen. Like I, I think I know what the circumstances will be, but it's not till I've written those scenes out that then I can think, or how that actually changes them. And sometimes it's not the way I would have predicted. Um, it's not that I have characters talking in my head or anything like that. Um, I'm not one of those sort of writers, but it's more that I have to write the scenes out to stimulate that growth and then to try and figure it out as we go along. Um, I'm a very chaotic uh, novelist in that sense. I don't have big sheets planning every plot point out. I just, I just live in chaos. There's a particular juxtaposition that I'm I'm just going to keep dancing around because I I need others to have the the joy of experiencing this myself. But I I, I hope I'm being clear enough to you at least a, a juxtaposition of a character's development that that plays out in a really interesting way. I was I was very conscious of coming to this character in in different ways as you revealed them. Were you were you conscious of, uh, I guess, maybe the way you'd sort of flipped a usual development there? Yeah, I was in a sense. I, I really wanted to show the growth of a character in a way that's not, that is done sometimes, but it's not the most common form of, thing, um, of turning someone into a hero or turning someone into a villain or seeing a child become an adult. Um, I wanted to do it in a way that left everything quite morally grey. It's not someone becoming a bad person or a good person. It's not an ascent or a descent. It's, it's a deepening of complexion, I guess, trying to a complexity, trying to try to make this character realise some of the faults of what they've done and change their behaviour and become a different person. But at the same time, not necessarily become a clear-cut redeemed figure because I think redemption is never that neat. Can we talk a little bit about your bestiary? Um, you mentioned wanting to write a, a book that constantly has people turning pages, and you definitely... I mean, at one point, I was convinced that the Rain Heron would become a veritable menagerie of fantastic creatures. Um, we threw, we through both the Rain Heron and the Ink Squids, though, you, you do show us these, these strangely familiar animals that humans 
must live in this kind of perilous harmony with. Um, the rain heron takes out the eyes of anyone that would seek to harm it, while the squid can only be calmed by this mutual exchange of blood with a human. These are these are animals that are kind of actively um, they're they're actively defying the kind of exploitation that our current world is built on. Are they are they purely works of imagination for you? Like, how do you how do you go about creating that? Yeah, they are. I guess they are quite imaginative. Um, I do I do definitely look to resources and sources of inspiration, uh, mostly in the natural world. Um, a lot of it is trying to look at something that is real and asking, what if? Um, that's where I came up with this impossible squid from. I actually came from snorkeling and looking at cuttlefish and just asking, what if, what if, what if? Um, and trusting that I wasn't so weird that people would just throw the book across the room. Um, but with the, with the actual rain here, and I wanted to create this kind of totemic mythical character that represented the beauty and the savagery of nature. I wanted it to be captivating but perilous. And kind of the more I thought about it, I realised I was just thinking about a storm where you can watch a storm roll in and it's the most, it's almost the most brutally gorgeous thing you've ever seen, but also it'll, it'll kill you in an instant. And it has absolutely no regard for human emotion or human endeavours. And so I, I pretty much just, this might be a bit of a simplification, but I pretty much just t- turned a storm into a bird. And then wrote it in enough different ways to, that I found it interesting. Um, so that's kind of where I came up with that one from. But there's no set template for how I go about making these things up. I just stumble around in the dark and see if I land on something. They're absolutely fantastic. And um, we talked a little earlier about ambiguity and we, we also talked about the idea of of taking lessons. And I mean, I think... I think it's probably a question for the ages around whether the stories that we hold on to, the stories that become mythologies that are passed from generation to generation, uh, begin as lessons or become lessons because they resonate. And, I mean, that was something that I I definitely got out of The Rain Heron, that a, a story that resonates ultimately will have lessons in it, and that's part of the resonance. Um, it is It is just... An absolutely fantastic tale. Um, I'm doing a lot of commenting today, Robbie. Uh, I've had, I've just had so much. I don't have to talk. (laughs) I've, I've just had so much fun reading this book, and um, it took me back. It took me back to your world of of flames and your particular way of telling stories, um, which I think is is something that, um, yeah, something something that I I just terribly enjoy. and uh, I'm always happy to engage with. Oh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, I'm just really kind of bemused in a good way that, that people are on board with it all because, uh, uh, yeah, I just feel like I'm making weird things up and trying to tell stories in, in interesting ways. So the fact that anyone's interested just um, really knocks me off my feet, to be honest. Um, yeah, I'm having a good time. Can I ask you then a little bit? This is this is a, a sort of question I never usually go to, but those responses that you get from people, um, what do they show you about your storytelling? What are what are you getting when when you find someone who resonates with your work? Because you've you've just said that you sort of think it's you're creating weird things and you're happy people engage, but is that showing you something about what people are searching for? I guess so. I wouldn't I wouldn't presume to to understand people all that well, I don't think I understand my 
myself even very well. But um, yeah, it's really interesting to see what parts of the books and, and the rain heron that, that people are attracted to and are engaged with. And it, I think it does show that a lot of people are, are more interested in nature than perhaps a society we, we really are aware of. I think people are really interested in the natural world and in preserving the natural world and, and, and diving into the messiness and weirdness of it. Um, that it's not a clean-cut English lawn, that animals aren't all best friends, um, it's not the wind in the willows. Yeah, I think people are really interested and I, I really appreciate that. And even when there's parts of that my books that they don't like, I, I'm really interested in hearing about that too, partly because I want to be a better writer and also because it it shows what people react to. And I would never think, oh, they didn't like that book, that part of the book, they don't know what they're talking about. I, I generally think oh, it's really interesting. I wonder why, but I probably can't send them an email because that would just be weird. Um, yeah, it's, it's just interesting to see what people engage with and that people are taking an interest in in things that aren't made up at all very much based in, in the environment. I'm speaking with Robbie Arnott and his latest book is The Rain Heron. It is, if you loved Flames, you will love this book. If you haven't yet encountered Robbie's writing, well, lucky you, you've got two to discover. Go out and get the Rain Heron. Um, Robbie, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having me. That's it for this great conversation with Robbie Arnott. Robbie's new novel is The Rain Heron and it's out now through text. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look at at Final Draft 2SER. Click subscribe in your podcast app. It means there'll be a new Great Conversation coming to you every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.